I'm just delighted to have with us this morning a man I consider sort of a philosopher, Edgar Tolmy. And the way we met is interesting. I was walking my very rambunctious Airedale on Brandle Road, and this man was walking in a much more serious fashion than I do. <laughs> it turns out he walks miles every day. But he stopped to talk, and my dog goes berserk. And everybody else is frightened and runs away. And Edgar just kept talking in a calm voice. And my dog did, I wrote the dog trainer. It's a miracle. <laughs> the dog just sat down and listened because Edgar has this commanding presence. So welcome, Edgar. Thank you very much. I was unaware of the command, but <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, tell us why you are walking. Well, uh, many years ago, uh, 12, 13 years ago, uh, 15 I think it was actually, I had a massive heart attack and uh, apparently it would have killed most people instantly. I'm very fortunate to have survived that. Uh, I walk because I have to walk to stay alive. I have to keep my heart strong. Uh, recently, I had some testing done, and uh, it turns out I'm I'm in need of a heart transplant. I'm on the list now, and uh, I don't know when that will happen. Someone else has to experience a terrible tragedy for me to receive that heart, and it's not something I'm looking forward to. But I walk because I can. There are people who are waiting for a heart transplant who cannot walk. I can. I had better, so I do. And I meet interesting people and dogs on my walks. <laughs> well, yes, and you shared so much, the little bits of your life, and I'm just going to name some of the things and see where we go. You had told me that... One lesson you learned when you were in service, you were standing at attention. Tell us what happened. Tell us this underlying profound message that, that you learned in boot camp, I think it was. That's right. When a young man or woman uh, first enlists in the armed forces and goes to boot camp, one of the first things that you learn is how to stand at attention. And there is a right way to do that. And when you stand at attention, you stand at attention. That's all you do, or you are supposed to do. But when you're a young buck uh, who has not been exposed to this before, the first thing that happens when you stand at attention is your nose begins to itch. And for the first 18 years of your life, when your nose itched, you scratched it. You soon learn in no uncertain terms and at clearly audible volume levels, that engaging in such behavior while at attention is not acceptable. You learn that you're of questionable parentage, that perhaps you don't speak English well, but you will learn <laughs> and will be happy to accommodate your educational requirements for as long as is necessary. So you don't scratch your nose when it itches, and you learn. Just because my nose scratches doesn't mean that I have to itch it. I'm going to itch it if I 
want to itch it, not because it scratches. That is a deep lesson. And I'm still (laughs) scratching my nose (laughs) when it itches. So I haven't learned that lesson yet, but this is a good one. Um, And another thing Edgar did on this walk is he left me with a question. And he said, there's, you know, you have to think about this. And I've been thinking about this on and off all week. And I still don't even have the beginning of an answer. But he said, what is it you see with your eyes? And the reason I ask that question is because that question is the traffic signal at the middle of the intersection between philosophy and science. Most people think that they can see physical objects. You cannot. You can see only one thing. And to prove it, we'll talk about what you can see in the absence of that one thing. On a moonless night, if you have a closet in the innermost portion of your house, go into it and turn off all the lights in the house. Go into it, close the door, and what can you see? Nothing. That's correct. Now, to be able to see, open the door, flip on a light. Now what can you see? All the things in the closet. All you can see is light. Light which is reflected and refracted off of objects gives you the illusion that you can see those objects. You cannot. All you can see is light. And you can prove it to yourself by going into a dark closet and taking a good look. You see nothing. All you can see is light. That you can see other things is an illusion. It is not reality. But that illusion is essential to successful operation in this reality. And to illustrate that, say that you were in the middle of a road and a large bus was barreling down at you at high speed, and you thought to yourself, well, that bus isn't really there, so I don't have to move. Soon you and the pavement would become intimately acquainted. The illusion that you can see the bus helps you to survive in this reality. But it is really no more than an illusion. You can see no bus. You can see light. That's all you can see. Well, that bus just ran through the intersection of science and philosophy. I want to know more about how you became a deep thinker. Tell me about your life. <laughs> like, where, where, where did you grow up? What, what kind of a family were you part of? Well, uh, let me say, as I described that a little bit, There are many ways to teach people things. Some people are able to teach people things by doing things the right way. And some people are able to teach people things by doing things the wrong way. I had a mother who was capable of teaching, doing things the right way. 
He was one tremendous human being. My father, on the other hand, taught me more by showing me the wrong way to do things. That's where I started. And uh, there's no feeling bad about that or feeling good about that. That's what it was. It made me who I am. I'm rather fond of me, so I <laughs> don't wish to change anything. Uh, but I, people told me when I was a kid, I have an old soul. I, I've always thought, uh, and I think that one of the things that my father and my mother both introduced me to was a love of the game of chess. And the reason chess is important is you can have all the plans for what you want to do, but if the other player doesn't cooperate, it doesn't matter. So you have to formulate all of your plans with a constant mind towards what is that person likely to do in response, and then where will I be? So I learned that. So it, when you apply that lesson from chess to life, it's a way of knowing what you're interacting with in order to see how you yourself are moving. Yes. And uh, there are two further points I want to expound upon in that discussion. Uh, the first is uh, there was a Quentin Tarantino movie in which uh, he jumped back and forth through time. There was the bad guys with crazy haircuts. John Travolta was one of them. Uh, that helps you to understand that you can look at things from different perspectives. And then, as I told you, I have some memory issues because of the strokes, but the, uh, there were two points I was going to make was that. And at the moment, it escapes me. I'm but sorry. But that's okay. We can think about jumping through time, which most of us don't get to do. But I get that feeling when I read history. You know, that, if you really read history closely, you almost feel like you can be in an earlier time. I don't know how you jump into the future, but what you thought of your second point? Yes. Uh, we, in a way, can jump through time. Uh, not physically, but mentally. Uh and this is a lesson I learned in life. Uh, you know, we sometimes have arguments with people, and we want to say something that's going to make us feel tremendous as it's leaving our mouths. But as soon as it's out, we're going to regret that and wish we had never said it. This is the thing about jumping around through time. Think about that before you say it, but don't think about saying it. Think about what you would feel like after you said it. Go there. Feel it. Feel the hurt you might inflict with those words. Do you want to do that? Inside, who you really are, do you want to do that to someone else? And then don't say that. And if someone pushes you so much that you have to say hurtful things, smile. Good day, sir or madam. I simply can't continue our discussion now. We'll talk soon. And leave. What excellent advice. I just last week wrote an editorial on civil discourse because one of the boards we cover is <laughs> kind of um, just 
falling apart because of rudeness and bad speech and people not thinking forward of the effects of their words, but that's a good foundational. And it's basic. It's not new. This goes back to do unto others as you would have others do unto you. It's basic humanity. Yeah, that's one of the tenets of almost all the world religions. So, yeah. And just being a decent human being. It, if, if it's okay for me to disobey the rules of decency in regard to you, then certainly it's okay for someone who's bigger and stronger than me to disobey the rules of decency regarding me. And that works out fine for that person until they're no longer the biggest and strongest. Well, why don't we all just treat each other with decency from the beginning? You'd be amazed how well we'd get along. Good advice. And I don't know if this is too painful of a place to go, and if it is, just stop me. But <clears throat> when I saw you on the dog walk, I knew you looked familiar. And <clears throat> it took me a minute to remember, and you had mentioned it was your son who had died That's in a right. crash when he was 19. And I covered that funeral, and you were so calm and caring, and you just thanked God for your son, and you comforted the people around you who were so undone. And I don't know if you want to talk at all about how it is to get through an experience like that and come out the other side. As I'm happy to, because I know people, this is not unique to me. This is a, a hurt that many people experience in their lives. William Shakespeare is known as a great author. In addition to that, he was a student of humanity, and he was a philosopher. And regarding my loss of my son, Alex, Shakespeare wrote, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. It hurts. But I'm much better off for having Alex. And at the time that Alex died, neither he nor his girlfriend nor anyone else knew that she was pregnant with his baby. And my granddaughter, Sarah, was born the next year. I didn't know that either. How wonderful. Yes. How wonderful. It is wonderful. It's a gift. Life is hard, but also life is beautiful. Life is a great joy. Life can be what we choose to make of it. And we're all handed tough stuff to handle, and sometimes it's too much for us, or we think it's too much for us. But on balance, when we look, most of us are very fortunate to have the good outweigh the bad, and the bad pounds us into better souls. Uh, one of the, my, the way I, I like to 
to look at things is if you believe in a God, think of God as a blacksmith. And a blacksmith uses a fire, burns coal, because coal burns really, really hot. And then that blacksmith takes a chunk of iron, which is useful for only one thing. That's being a doorstop. It's not shaped like anything useful. And that blacksmith superheats that iron in that fire, fired by the coal. And then when he gets it red hot, he takes his hammer and he begins to pound it into something useful. And as he's pounding, the metal cools off and he heats it back up again, superheated, and then he begins pounding again. And if need be, he files, but he keeps heating and pounding and filing. Well, if you believe in God, perhaps God is a blacksmith and your soul is a chunk of iron. All that hurt, all that pounding, it's for something. And when that stops, your soul is now a useful implement. Useful not only to yourself, but perhaps to others. So that's more of my foolishness, if you will. I don't think it's foolish at all. I think it's deep, but you do have a lighter side because you were telling me, and maybe you can share with our listeners, that you recently worked at the Altamont Fair, the ticket booth, and tell me, <laughs> tell us what what you would say to the kids. Uh, given my current appearance, I would... And just so listeners know, he has long white hair and a full, very full white beard. Well, uh, I would tell kids uh, at the gate, uh, within earshot of their parents, uh, I would ask them if they knew who I was and tell them I was working my summer job, but I had to get back up north because the reindeer couldn't take care of themselves. And I'd wait for the kids' eyes to get a little wider, and then I'd say again so that Mom could hear, I'll be watching. See you soon. <laughs> so that's why the kids were so well behaved at the fair this year. I was wondering about that. <laughs> I like to think so. <laughs> well, um, another thing that you broached on the the dog walk was courage. Tell us your thoughts about courage and what makes someone courageous. Well, it's counterintuitive. Many people who don't believe themselves to have courage or to be courageous think that courage is the absence of fear. It is not. Courage is doing what must be done despite your fear because there's something more important to you than your fear. And if you ever talk to people that we really all consider to be heroes, they'll tell you they're not heroes. They just did what had to be done. It's in all of us. We have to bring it out. Well, I would think it would take 
uh, quite a bit of courage to wake up every day wondering if you're on this list for a heart. And I mean, how do you, how do you live with that from day to day? Because your heart is so central to both, you know, the biology of your body working, but also metaphorically, you know, to who you are. Um, what, what is that like living with that? Well, it can be very scary. Uh, and last year when my cardiologist told me that my ejection fraction ratio, that's a measure of your heart's performance. Say, say, the, say it again. Ejection uh-huh. fraction ratio. Ejection fraction ratio. Okay. That's correct. Uh, a normal healthy person has an ejection fraction ratio of about 65, and that means with each beat of your heart, it pumps out about 65% of the blood that's in it, and it pulls in that much new blood to replace it. When I had my heart attack, my ejection fraction ratio afterwards was uh, about 32. So half of what it should be. About half of what it should be, and last summer when I had that measured it was at 19 so uh, I am in uh, I need a heart but I am happy to wait because I know there are people who need one more than me we met on a walk I did I do five and a half miles and, I don't and you stop. do it briskly. I mean, <laughs> you, well, your shirt was covered with sweat, and I'm I'm strolling along, and <laughs> you're just zipping through. Well, I'll tell you the truth. When the doctor told me that, uh, it scared me a lot, and I stopped walking for a while. Too too long. But then Edgar kicked in. And I said, I'm going for the walk. If death can keep up with me, fine. If death can't keep up with me, should get in better shape. If death wants a chunk of me, better be ready to give me a chunk back. I know I'm going to lose eventually, but I will not live my life in fear. I will not live my life in fear. Death knows that. I know that. We play accordingly. Wow. Well, our time has gone very fast. Do you have any clothing thoughts to leave our listeners with? Could be... Yes. One thing that I would really like people to consider is, remember, if what we see is an illusion, then when we see black, white, yellow, red, brown... It's all an illusion. And I'm talking about skin color. There's only one people, one race, the human race. We're all brothers and sisters. Please behave accordingly. Thank you. Thank you.